My dad's got one of the uh, last remaining pickup trucks, I think, from the 70s. It's still on the road, or probably not, but this one looks like it. It, uh, it looks terrible, but it's a real faithful truck. <clears throat> and the only glitch in the whole deal, other than the paint job, is the gas gauge. In this truck, if you're driving along with half a tank, it, it says no matter what, almost empty. You just fill up the tank, you got a full tank of gas. It says almost empty. The only time it's accurate is when you're almost empty, <laughs> or when it's empty, actually it does scoot over a little bit to show you that, that it's empty and that you better hurry and get someplace quick. Well, there's one thing that I've seen in life that really I've noticed shorts out, you might say, the wire between our gas tank and our gas gauge. That is, the reality of what we have versus our perception of what we have. And the wire that runs between the reality and our perception often gets shorted out because of bitterness. Bitterness can blur your perception. It can take a perfectly uh, balanced, balanced perception of life and totally skew it out of proportion. You can be riding along with a full tank, but bitterness will show you that you are almost empty. Thank you. Sounds like I'm on a radio station. Bitterness will show you you're almost empty. Well, look with me in the book of Ruth, would you? Open your Bible. We're going to continue, as David said, in Route 66. And look at the issue of bitterness today, not so much focusing on the character of Ruth as on another character that really struggled with bitterness. In today's politically correct world, you have to be real careful about offending people. And you almost get the impression that you have to begin talking like this little boy, this little fourth grader who gave a report on the origin of Thanksgiving and he said the pilgrims came here seeking freedom from you know what. They landed, when they landed they gave thanks to you know who. Because of them we can worship each Sunday you know where. Well today I may not be as politically correct but I want to be correct and straightforward when talking to you about the issue that all of us deal with and struggle with, and that's bitterness. Let's pick up the story in the very first chapter, Ruth 1, verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in, in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Well, we're, we're told that this begins in the time of the judges. And if uh, you look at the verse just prior to this, at the very end of the book of Judges, the last verse there says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And evidently it was right in the eyes of this family to leave the promised land and go to the land of pagans and live there. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. 
The names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then Machlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. They planned to just live there temporarily. Remember verse 1 says they planned to sojourn. That just means, yeah, we're just going there for a little while. Well, they stayed there ten years. And I think that it's interesting, if you were to notice that leaving the land of promise did not solve their problem. Their problem was they feared they were going to die from famine. So they go to a place where there's no famine and they still died. It didn't solve their problem. And in a Jewish culture, for the men in the family to die and to leave the women widows was really a very terrible thing because it was through your sons that your family name is carried on and your property is passed on from generation to generation. And so if a son dies, then a brother is to marry the son's wife and raise up offspring for the name of this dead brother that the land might continue to stay in the family. And yet we're told here that the woman, meaning Naomi, the mother, was bereft of her two children and her husband. She is about as bad off as a woman can be during that day. Well, but then she hears something in verse 6. It causes her to do something. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she'd heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Why does she say it's harder for me than for them? Because as a Jew, as I said, she's going back to her land. For a Jew to remarry, she has to remarry within the family. So that the brother, that the dead man's name can live on. And that the land can remain there, remain theirs. And so she says, don't come back to Israel with me because the, the way things work there is you've got to marry another one of my sons. She says, I don't have any more sons. They're dead. 
And she says, even if I were to have a husband tonight, and even if I were to give birth tonight, would you wait for them to grow up and marry them? I mean, she's, she's laying before these two daughters-in-law who want to come back with her. She says, you don't want to come back. It's worse for me than for you because you can go back to Moab and get married there and have a family, be protected. But if you come back to Israel with me, you're facing a desolate, destitute, hopeless future as a widow because that's the way it works over there. Well, now that they're given this information, look at verse 14 at the decisions that are made. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Such an interesting character are both Ruth and Orpah. When reality is shown, the real, uh, the real person is shown. For Orpah, she sees, hey, I don't want to give up my life. You know, I love you and all, but uh, hey, you know, this is the rest of my life. So she hits the road and goes back to her people, notice, and to her gods. Her relationship with the, with the true Lord was just words. She goes back to her gods. But Ruth, we're told, clung to her. Literally, the Hebrew says she cleaved to her. It's the same word that's used in Genesis speaking of a man uh, cleaving to his wife. We're talking about a lifetime commitment, which she makes plain here. But it's not just a commitment to Naomi, to her mother-in-law. It's a, it's a commitment to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. Because she says that even when you die, where you die, that's where I'm going to die. Now, she's not anticipating both of them dying probably at the same moment. She's saying, Israel is now my country. Yahweh is now my God. Even when you die, I'm not moving back to Moab. It's an admirable uh, decision because she is basically willing to be destitute the rest of her life for the sake of her God, her people, and her mother-in-law. I wish we had time to milk the principles that are in there, but I want to focus not on Ruth so much this morning, but on Naomi's attitude. So let's keep, keep reading. Look at verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me pleasant, Naomi. Call me bitter, Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, 
since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Wow. She comes back into Bethlehem. Both of them come in together. The women of the city see them coming in and they say, wow, is this Naomi? Could this be Naomi? After 10 years, evidently the, the lines of pain and worry have deepened in her face. And they say, could this be Naomi? Could this be the one we call pleasant, which is what Naomi means? She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter, which is what Mara means. She says, call me Mara. Why does she say, call me bitter? I mean, she, she says, I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. This is essentially what she's saying. What is her rationale for being bitter? She tells us four times in this verse, and she told us a little earlier back in verse 13, but we'll just read the four times. Notice what she says. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter. Why? For... Number one, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Number two, the Lord has brought me back empty. Number three, the Lord has witnessed against me. Number four, the Almighty has afflicted me. Four times, and if you add verse 13, five times, she blames God for what's happening. She is bitter because God allowed this to happen to her. And I wonder if there's not almost a sarcasm as she says Almighty. She refers to the Lord as the Lord. She uses his name, Yahweh. But then she says, but Shaddai, the Almighty, has afflicted me. I just wonder if there's not a tinge of sarcasm in that. Because usually when you think of the Almighty, you think of him using his might for good. And here, she's, she's calling his name, and yet he has allowed evil. In fact, she says, he has done it. The Almighty has afflicted me. It's God's fault. You ever notice how we give God the credit for all the bad stuff that happens in our lives? But we take the credit for all the good stuff that happened? I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. I went out with what I did, but I came back with what the Lord did. Five times she blames it on God. And I want you to look at something else in verse 20 and 21. Notice what else she's focusing on. I'll count the times. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? That's eight times. Me, 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 me. What is she focusing on? What do any of us focus on when we're bitter? Ourselves. And that's it. She is so consumed with her self-interest she is so bitter and angry that the Almighty God who could have stopped this, didn't stop this, allowed this to happen, that it has turned her into a bitter woman, fully expecting such a bitter existence that she says, don't even call me that. Call me bitter. 
That's where I am. That's where I'm going. And that's what you call me. I don't know, but maybe you might feel a little like her today. Maybe life has dealt you a raw deal. Maybe you grew up in a home where your parents abused you, either emotionally or sexually or physically. Maybe your spouse up and just walked out. Maybe the job that you've had for years and years and years, all of a sudden they can you for some guy that just got out of college whom they'll pay half as much. Maybe your finances are in a continual disarray in spite of the fact that you budget and you do what is right. It always seems that you struggle. I want to challenge you today with a hard statement, and that is this. I want to challenge you to let go of all the excuses that keep you bound to bitterness. Let go of all the excuses. You know, some of us have a real problem admitting that we're bitter. At least Naomi admits it. In fact, she says, you can just call me that because I'm bitter. You can just call me bitter. But the rest of us, we're not quite that honest. You know, we hide it. We know that being bitter is not a good thing, so we'll, we'll redefine it. We'll say, well, you know, I'm just dealing, I'm dealing with issues in my past. I've got some issues that I'm struggling with in my past. We'll redefine it when the fact is we're bitter. I want to challenge you for a second to just be honest. What excuses are you hiding behind to justify an ongoing bitterness with a past event, person, even a place? What excuses? Because that's all they are, are excuses. But what's tough about it, though, is sometimes those excuses, or all, most of the time, I should say, have just a thin... They're, they're latent with a little bitty thin layer of truth. For example, if you did grow up in an, an abusive home, it is legitimate for you to be upset about that, to be angry about that. That is a legitimate anger. If you got canned from your job and it was unfair, that is a legitimate anger. If some organization or person shafted you, that is legitimate. But it is illegitimate to let that anger fester and turn to bitterness which you take to the grave. That's what I'm talking about here today. I'm not talking about a righteous anger that you can deal with. I'm talking about an anger that you let fester and grow that turns into bitterness. You know one, one reason why we struggle, I think, with letting go of past pain while we hang on to it and remain bitter? This kind of sounds odd at first, but I think it's because we like control. We like to be in control. In fact, we crave it. We've got to have it. We can't stand the thought, the idea, that people can and will do things outside of our wishes. And when they do, and when we, come, we bump up right against the hard reality that we are not in control, what do we do? We'll say, wait, my past is too painful to face. When the truth is, we won't be satisfied in, until we find a way to control all the painful experiences that come in our lives. And since we'll never find it, you know how one of the ways we handle that? We become bitter against the experience. 
because there's one way we can control. If somebody did me wrong, I still have some control over the situation by choosing not to forgive that person. Especially when the person is unrepentant. You feel that bitterness is justified. When that parent that abused you, or that organization that shafted you, or that dot, dot, dot that wasn't fair happened to you, and they're not unrepentant. And I tell you what, let's take this up on, even on another level like Naomi is facing. When God apparently is unrepentant about the things that he allows in your life, he hadn't come down and says, boy, you know, when I let that happen, gosh, I'm sorry. God doesn't do that. What's wrong, almighty God, that you allow that to happen? Even God seems unrepentant to us. And so we feel justified in that bitterness. That was wrong. That should not have happened. And the only way that I can have control over that issue is to choose not to forgive. Because when you forgive someone that is not repentant, you feel like you're defeated. You feel like you've been defeated. And to be defeated is to not be in control. The only problem with that, though, is we, we pay a very high emotional price for that bitterness. We pay a very high emotional price on ourselves for the fact that somebody else is unrepentant. I think sooner or later, all of us control freaks, and we all are, we have to admit our inability to control other people. We have to admit it, particularly when that bad experience is gone forever. There is a, there is a difficult truth that we're going to have to come to the realization that exists. That is that pain is inevitable, and sometimes it is often unbearable. That is reality. Pain is inevitable, and sometimes it is often unbearable. That is reality. You can expect it. Now, that is not a pessimistic view of life. That is not a fatalistic view of life. That is a realistic view of life. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. So don't be shocked. Peter in 1 Peter says, hey, why are you surprised when these fiery trials come upon you for your testing? Don't be shocked. In this world you'll have tribulation. Jesus says, but... Take courage, I've overcome the world. There's a way to deal with it. But the fact is, you're going to have to deal with it and not block it off trying to control it by hanging on to bitterness and not forgiving. Stephen Crane wrote a paragraph, uh, almost like a, a poem, you might say, that I find very fascinating. He's, he writes, In the desert I saw a creature, naked, beastly, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter. Bitter, he answered. But I like it because it's bitter and because it's my heart. You see, I think another reason we choose to stay bitter is because it's familiar. To change for the better is hard. Any kind of change is hard, especially choosing not to be bitter and choosing to forgive. It's hard because you're having to constantly change your thinking pattern. 
and that takes a lot of hard work. We like the benefits of good change, but we don't like the hard work that requires it, okay? We like the benefit of looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but we don't like the hard work that goes with it to look like Arnold, okay? That's the way it is. It's hard work, and that's another reason. So I think two reasons that we struggle with bitterness are one, we like control, and bitterness gives us some sad sense of control, and two, change takes work. And those are two, for some people, insurmountable reasons to let go of all the excuses that keep you bound to bitterness. Look at the screen for a second at a New Testament verse Paul wrote. In Ephesians 4, he said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let all bitterness. And the rest are significant, but bitterness is what I want to focus on. He says, Let all bitterness be put away from you. The way Paul wrote that phrase, Be put away from you, is not like you would write a proverb. This is always true. This is something that in your whole life that you're going to wake up and say, all right, today I'm going to do this. No, the way he wrote it specifically indicates that whatever it is you're dealing with right now, you need to put it away. You need to quit putting it off right now. Whatever bitterness you're dealing with, you need to put it away. It is an action that you are to take at this particular moment. Very specific. The author to the Hebrews writes a similar verse. He says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, in particular, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. A root of bitterness that grows, that springs up. It's the picture of a plant growing from a root of bitterness. It causes trouble. And it defiles you morally, is what the idea is. It takes what is good and it makes it bad. When he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, this isn't talking about losing salvation or not having salvation. That's not the context. To come short of the grace of God here in this context is speaking coming short of the example of God's grace and coming short of the provision of God's grace. You come short of his example when you, you as a Christian, don't live out the grace that you've been given. That is, that the Lord Jesus died for your sins when He didn't have the obligation to do anything but judge you for your sins. In His grace, He chose to die for you. You place your faith in Him and your sins are forgiven. That's the example of God's grace. But the context of this verse also talks about the provision of God's grace. That is, the only way that you're going to be able to not let a root of bitterness spring up in you is to rely upon the grace of God because in your own strength, you won't be able to do it. When we deal with bitterness, we tend to deal with surface issues. Not just bitterness, but all kinds of problems. Like you've got debt, you've got, uh, you've got alcoholism, you've got uh, being overweight, okay, just to name a few, common. But these are not the problems. These are the symptoms of the problem. The problem goes down to the root. The root of some of these issues is your self-image, your anger with God, with parents, with other people, 
your desire to be in control, those are the roots. The author here tells us, pull it up by the root. Don't just mow, it, mow over the top of it and then next week it's going to grow back up and you're going to have to deal with it again. Get out the spade and start digging. You know what? That's, that's tough for us. Again, because it requires work. And so I want to encourage you, if you're dealing with the same issue, if that you keep having to cut the same weed off in your life, I want to challenge you that you might need to go to somebody that can help you understand the root and get to the real issue so that you can finally have some closure on these issues in your life. Your primary task may need to be letting go of any and all excuses that keep you bound to bitterness. You need to begin to assume responsibility for who you are. Yeah, your parents had some influence on you. Yeah, your friends have some influence on you. Yeah, the culture in which you live has some influence on you. But ultimately, my friend, you are responsible for who you are, regardless of parents, regardless of friends, regardless of culture. You make the choice of how you're going to be. And so I, I challenge you. Let go of those excuses. And the Bible commands us to let go of them. One of my favorite scenes in Jaws, I have a lot of favorite scenes in Jaws, but one of my favorite scenes in Jaws is where they, uh, there's a shark or, or a fin swimming on the beach and all these people see the fin and they just scamper over each other to get out of the water. And uh, so after everybody's on the beach and all the patrol boats come over and they've all got their rifles, you remember the scene, they've all got their rifles barreled down on this fin, well, this cardboard fin flops over and these two little kids with scuba masks come up, they had played a joke on everybody. And it was funny to them until they see five rifles sticking in their face. And one of these guys, and I love this line, he, he, he kind of points over like this and he goes, he, he made me do it, he made me do it. It's just such a sad excuse, but that is human nature. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very first time that God came to Adam and said, What have you done? What did Adam say? She made me do it, right? And not only her, but who else? The woman you gave me. It's not just her fault, but Lord, it's your fault. You gave her to me. It's not my fault. It's her fault and your fault. We have not changed an iota since that time. We carry the same kind of attitude that Naomi has here, that God, if you are so almighty, if you are so good, then why have you allowed this evil in my life? A bitter spirit towards the Lord God is in essence making God accountable to us. To say, Lord, you know, I know you're doing your best, but really, you need to check with me before you do those kind of things in my life. Okay? No, that's not the way it works. God is God because he's all wise and he really does know what he's doing. Even when it doesn't look like he does. Now, we don't have time to read all the book. I wish we did. If you were with us several years ago, we actually did a series on Ruth, and it was really enjoyable. But let me just summarize where the... Hey, how's it going? 
Let me just su summarize where the book goes. All right, we've got a parade here. <laughs> Remember when we left off, Ruth and Naomi come in, everybody says, oh boy, I can't believe this is Naomi. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. And the end of chapter 1 tells us that they, get, they arrive into Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And the book goes on to talk about the fact how Ruth just so happens to go and work during the barley harvest at a, at a man's field named Boaz who just so happens to be a relative who just so happens to be willing to marry Ruth and everything just works out great. Now we've really abridged the story and taken a lot of neat twists and turns out of it. But that's the long and the short of it. Now flip to chapter 4, verse 13, and let's look at Naomi again. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a Redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth gave birth to a son. Here you've got the original baby Ruth right here in the Bible. I'm sorry, that's bad. And notice, too, what the women call Naomi. What had she said, call me? Call me bitter. Call me Mara. But that's not what they're calling her now, is it? She's gone back from Mara to Pleasant. They call her Naomi. May he be, they say to you, a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Everything she feared for her future turned out to be completely unfounded because of the way it turned out. To me, one of the most interesting contrasts in this entire book is a statement that, that Naomi makes in chapter 1 and can contrast that with the statement made about Naomi here in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 1 she says, the, I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Empty. How do you think Ruth felt? All right, she's standing there right beside her. You know, empty. Well, thanks a lot. You know, well, she didn't come back empty. Chapter 4 says, Though she left with seven sons, and in her mind came back empty, she didn't. She came back with one who was better than seven sons. She left with two. She came back with one who was better than seven. And with that in mind, here is a principle. Wouldn't it be great if we could really apply this to our lives and realize this to realize your present emptiness may prove to be God's blessing it's the way it was with Naomi the Lord's brought me back empty boy how bitterness can blind us you can be riding along with a full tank brimming over and bitterness puts a short between our tank and our gauge it reads empty when in fact you're full. Bitterness. Naomi is defining her understanding of the character of God by her circumstances. That is such a dangerous thing to do. 
I mean, you might as well just take this book and, you know, toss it, if that's what you're going to do. To define your concept of God's character by your circumstances. That's what she's done. The Almighty has brought me back empty. I'm bitter. That's my future bitterness. She saw the character of God, and I really think that she was doubting the goodness of God, which is what the devil tries to get us to do almost each and every time. All the way back to the garden, that's what he did. The Lord really said, don't eat that, boy. He's, just, he's trying to hold you back, getting you to doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt the goodness of God. Don't let your circumstances define how you understand God's character. Rather, do just the opposite. Let your understanding of God's character give you a perception of your circumstances. Because you know God is good. You know He is almighty. So if He allows something to 